0: Hello and welcome to the Emergency Medicine Journal's primary survey podcast for November 2023. My name is Sarah Edwards and I'm joined with... Hi, I'm Rick Boddy. Thank you very much for joining us for this month's podcast. And we've got a wide smorgasbord of papers that we're going to talk about uh, today. Everything from alcohol to cardiac arrest to corduacuinae. So I'm going to kick off today and talking about some of the disparities in emergency care, and this is particularly around alcohol and alcohol testing uh, for adult major trauma patients. Alcohol is a big problem, not only in the United Kingdom, but across the world, and its impact on health is can be quite substantial and quite significant. Uh, This month's journal sees a paper called Biasis in the Collection of Blood Alcohol Data for Adult Major Trauma Patients in Victoria, Australia, with the first author being Lau, uh, Georgina Lau, and her team. This paper essentially um, was looking at in-hospital alcohol testing and trying to understand what biases happen with this alcohol testing around trauma patients. Essentially, they, between January 2018 to December 2021, they used the Victorian State Trauma Registry on adult major trauma patients that came in. And they were trying to understand um, who had alcohol testing and were there any biases or... um, Issues or anything that came out from that and um, how it works in Australia generally with this system is that they often uh, just routinely test for alcohol for any patients that present for trauma um, and within the department so it's really just trying to ascertain how they were doing this. So this study included uh, just over 14,000 major trauma patients, of which 4,563, so 32% of them, had a blood alcohol test recorded. Having a blood alcohol test completed was significantly associated with age, socioeconomic disadvantage level, preferred language, and having pre-existing mental health or substance use conditions, smoking status, presenting during times of heavy community alcohol consumption, injury and intent, and um, Glasgow coma scales. So when we look at the disparities greater, there was higher odds of testing, as in alcohol testing were associated with pre-existing mental health conditions with an adjusted odds ratio of 1.39 with a confidence interval of between 1.0. 2 to 1.89 and substance use again with an adjusted odd ratio of 2.33 with a 95% confidence interval of 1.47 to 3.70 and finally living in a more disadvantaged area so uh, looking at the quintile associated to that disadvantaged area, so th- so those lower levels. Again, this had an adjusted odds ratio of 2.30 with a confidence interval of 1.52 to 3.48. Broadly speaking, what does that mean for us? Um, the, you know, from this paper, there is clearly some biases um, associated with the collection of blood alcohol data. And this has an impact not only on surveillance of alcohol-related injuries, that actually probably needs a little bit unpicking and actually do we need to you know routinely collect alcohol testing information after all major trauma irrespective of backgrounds and what's happening but we need to understand the impact of alcohol on our trauma patients first before we can decide what we need to do about it and paired with this paper this month that comes from Australia is a, is a commentary by Vanessa Kubas and David Noman, who titles their commentary, Addressing Biases in Alcohol Testing for Trauma Patients, What is the Solution? And they uh, walk you through not only um, some of the thoughts around the paper that we've just discussed, but also some of the differences that occur in different health systems across the world about who tests alcohol and who doesn't and the bottom line is is really that I think ultimately no one wants to bias themselves or no systems want to bias themselves but what we know and from the work that they've discussed within this commentary is that even when it's mandated that everyone needs an alcohol level it doesn't happen and there are inherent biases that happen with the collection of even the blood and then who ends up getting that blood collected i'd be really interested to hear what you think rick about sort of alcohol testing and biases that may occur with major trauma patients and the commentary that goes with this
1: well i found it really interesting for a start We don't do a lot of alcohol testing, I have to be honest. We just don't routinely test for alcohol in our patients because if it's not going to make a direct difference to the patient's care, we don't use it for surveillance purposes, um, in my emergency department at least. So that was just interesting to learn from this paper that there are differences in different healthcare systems. But the, the discrepancies in testing and apparent biases and decisions to test was really interesting too. And I think this goes far wider than alcohol testing. You can think about this, whether it might be an issue with regards to troponin testing or screening for hepatitis and HIV, for example. Do we also have unconscious biases that might influence our decision to test patients? I really wouldn't be surprised if there are, particularly based on the findings of this paper. And it just goes to show how our own unconscious biases really do influences influence the care that we're likely to provide to our patients uh, so it's something that we always have to be aware of um, and overcome and particularly for uh, researchers doing epidemiological research this can vastly change the conclusions of that research if you assume the absence of a test means that the test was negative because clearly there is a bias inherent in that approach.
0: And I think, you know, this paper probably reflects other biases, probably around similar sorts of groups. And I think, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done trying to understand why these biases occur and how we can mitigate against it. Because clearly, as the commentary stated, even in systems, which is the US system, it sort of mandates that you collect an alcohol level, even there, there's biases present, because it doesn't always happen for lots of reasons. And then you end up with, you know, a skewed way of, you know, looking at this data.
1: Absolutely. So, what an interesting start. Um, moving on from that, Sarah, I've taken a look at a paper evaluating outcomes in patients without hospital cardiac arrest. So, this is a study from Paris. It's a retrospective study, and they've studied for eighteen-month periods between 2005 and 2018 and looked at trends in outcomes. So, it's from from Paris. And their primary outcome that they were looking for was survival at hospital discharge with a good neurological outcome. So they got quite a lot of patients in this study, 3,476 patients met the inclusion criteria. And the main finding was that the survival to hospital discharge increased from 12% in 2005 to 25% in 2018. So more than a doubling in the survival rate. There was also an increase in the uh, rate of return to spontaneous circulation at hospital admission from 43% to 58%. So that's heartening in itself. Basically what they've done to to arrive at this is, is identify these four separate cohorts over that period and sort of incrementally evaluate how survival rates are changing. So you can see survival rates have got a lot better but one of the beauties of this paper is in the secondary analyses because they've tried to explain that by having a look at what else might influence it and they noted a couple of things that have changed so there's a uh, telephone triage improved with hand on belly so if, if someone calls 999 or 112 in Paris for uh, help with someone who's collapsed in order to recognized cardiac arrest in a timely way they had a hands-on belly initiative where they ask the person calling to place their hands on the belly of the patient and feedback how how often the chest was rising and falling and that allowed earlier institution of CPR there's clearly better education and uh, we got better rates of bystander CPR over the time and there was better availability of AEDs so what we see, in fact, is that they, they've analysed the data to show that the use of bystander CPR improved dramatically during the first three periods. So from it started at 20% of patients receiving bystander CPR, then 41% in the second period, and then 56% in the third period. And similarly, the rate of AED use increased So not only does this study show us that survival rates after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest were improving over time in Paris, but it also helps us to explain why that might be, because of better use of bystander CPR, better early recognition of cardiac arrest with telephone triage, and earlier use of AEDs.
0: I think this paper just really sums up the re- the importance of, you know, teaching people how to use AEDs and bystander CPR, which lots of people are advocating for, you know that, you know, everyone should learn how to do it and this is such a really positive paper to show that. I mean, there are some considerations that we would need to have. You know, this is Paris, it's a big urban centre, you know, actually could this be applied to, you know, rural parts of France or rural parts of, you know, the UK, for example, or other parts of the world. But it's such a basic life-saving intervention that clearly can benefit patients. I think it's, it's phenomenal that they've been able to show this over such a, you know, nearly 20 years worth of work. It's incredible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Really impressive paper. And uh, moving on from this one, I'm really interested to know what you made of the paper that we've published this month on e-scooters. They are, you know, extremely dangerous, at least from our perspective in the emergency department, because we see, we see uh, patients who've um, fallen foul of them, but they're also extremely fun. Uh, and you've looked at a paper evaluating the use of e-scooters and their impact on emergency medicine.
0: Yeah, so this is a multi-centre prospective observational study to evaluate healthcare impacts of e-scooters on emergency departments. And this has been done by the um, Trainee Emergency Research Network in the UK as part of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine looking at e-scooters. And as you said, Rick, uh, we've actually done a couple of papers over the years on e-scooters and their impact on emergency departments. And there's clearly a lot of work being done to, to try and unpick this. So, um, for those of you who don't know, and I didn't know until I read this paper that actually in the United Kingdom, a rental e-scooter trial scheme was introduced in 2020. Alongside trials, it it was illegal private e-scooter use in the public, uh, public spaces had also increased. So, I think the understanding was that actually if we can have a rental system, at least there's potentially some control versus those um, private e-scooters where you can't regulate. And essentially what uh, the TURN network, the Trainee Emergency Research Network, did was between 13th of September and the 19th of November 2021 across 20 sites, which included 10 adults major trauma centres, um, seven included co-located paediatric major trauma centres and 10 city centre trauma units. They collected data of a four-week period of emergency department patients presenting with an injury associated with an e-scooter, be it the driver, be it the passenger, be it the bystander, anyone Uh, within those 24-hour periods, and they were all collected. They had a a total of 250 patients were enrolled, and the median age was 26. Injuries were predominantly among those driving e-scooters, so the drivers. Uh, Ten were pedestrians. uh, Five were e-scooter passengers. I'm not sure how you're a passenger on an e-scooter, but okay. And two were cyclists injured whilst colliding with an e-scooter. Rental e scooters were ridden uh, about 37 to 38% of the time, and uh, they included 94 94 people of the presentations. 49 were privately owned, so 20% were privately owned, and the rest we were unsure. So the the mean injury severity score of these patients was 2.9, but the range was phenomenal from 0 to 36. Um, with eight point eight percent of patients having an ISS of greater than nine, with that comes the you know the cost to these emergency departments. So in the United Kingdom, there's uh, or in England, uh, there is a fixed fee that you get um, depending on you know how. Uh, injured, well, injured or how much um, stuff is needed for that particular patient? So there's a variable fee, but the total estimated cost of the twenty emergency departments were was fifty one thousand four hundred and forty nine pounds. With the mean cost per patient being two hundred and five pounds and eighty p, with eight patients, so those uh, with those higher injury severity scores, getting the maximum threshold amount of six hundred and twenty four pound and sixteen pence um, for it, and you know injuries, as you'd expect, were uh, everything from mo- were mostly upper and lower extremity injuries, face, head, and then a smattering of everything else. Obviously, this is a snapshot study. Uh, there are limitations, and, and those can be read in the in the paper. But I think it's really interesting to see e-scooters and their impact on emergency departments within England. And you know, that sort of these injuries and and what have you sort of fit with other papers that have looked at e-scooters around the world um, last year or the year before. We did a paper around e-scooters and the impact in Berlin in Germany. So definitely lots of work happening around this topic. What do you think, Rick?
1: I think it's really important to highlight this. Uh, Obviously, we see some e-scooter injuries, and this is um, demonstrating that there's quite a lot of them, in fact, in the areas where they've got uh, e-scooter trials going on and uh, significant injuries, significant costs. Uh, So I think um, it shows that, We need a little bit of help i mean we need some this to be regulated and um we need um manufacturers to play a role in improving safety i can appreciate that uh this is a a tricky issue to navigate because if you hire an e-scooter you're often out and about you don't tend to have a helmet with you previous research has shown low helmet use when people hire e-scooters um that probably puts you at quite an increased risk of a serious head injury, for example. So I I think we need a bit of help, just like with with motor vehicles. We need regulation to bring in things like seatbelts and airbags, things that have drastically improved road safety. Uh, We're going to need a bit of help to improve safety for people who are using e-scooters because they are an attractive mode of transportation. They're a fun way to get about, but we've got to do that in a way that um, avoids a public health problem.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's over to you again, Rick, with another paper on pre-hospital stuff this time.
1: Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, so we go over to Sheffield this time. Steve Goodacre is the lead author on a study looking at pre-hospital early warning scores for adults with suspected sepsis. So this was interesting uh, as an exercise in data linkage. Uh, Essentially, the team wanted to look at how accurate different early warning scores were in the pre-hospital environment for recognising patients with sepsis. Uh, I think we probably all recognise that this is an issue. We see lots of patients uh, pre-hospitally who are phoned through as possible sepsis and we need to get optimum sensitivity and specificity of that so that we uh, make the best use of our resources and focus attention appropriately on the sick patients who really do have sepsis. So this is a retrospective diagnostic cohort study And what the team has done is they've taken data from the ambulance service, they've used NHS numbers to then link that to the hospital data and find out what actually happened to the patients. They tried unsuccessfully to use NHS Digital to get these data and had to go back and link it um, more directly between the organisations. So that was an interesting finding in itself, I felt. Essentially, they've got 25,000 patients, cases, that they they were included in this study of patients, with suspected sepsis and they were able to link the data of around fourteen thousand of those patients so a fair bit of attrition because they're using the nhs number and uh you can see that uh that that does cause a few issues there's a little bit of bias in the data because of that the patients who were not linked were significantly younger by about a decade than the patients who were linked so there's a bit of a difference there They had a look at the accuracy of numerous early warning scores and they plotted rock curves. The bottom line is that the NEWS2 score appeared to have the greatest diagnostic accuracy of all of the scores that they um, evaluated. They also had a look at paramedic uh, gestalt or clinical judgment and the sensitivity and specificity of that. So I'll just give you a few key findings here. The sensitivity of a paramedic impression of sepsis or infection was 57.2% and the positive predictive value was 15.6%. Now, I don't think this analysis is perfect because they've had to use retrospective data to do this. And they've relied on going through notes to see if the paramedics had suspected sepsis in words or infection in words. So there is a limitation to that analysis but a positive predictive value of 15.6% is pretty low. So it just shows what a challenging diagnosis this is to make. And that kind of fits with with what I would have anticipated because the paramedics are operating under conditions of significant uncertainty. So it's no surprise that the positive predictive value is so low. Meanwhile, News 2 had a sensitivity of 52.2% at the lower threshold of four points that goes down to 44.7% at a higher threshold of six points. And if you take a really high threshold of eight, the sensitivity goes down to 27.4%. The positive predictive value at that high threshold was only 33.3%. So all of the scores evaluated and Gestalt essentially had pretty poor positive predictive value. The bottom line here was that News 2 is the best, but it's the best of a bad bunch. And I think this shows that um, we need better tools to recognise sepsis in the pre-hospital environment. What did you think, Sarah?
0: Yeah, I think this paper, again, highlights the challenges of diagnosing sepsis. And I and I was just thinking, actually, do we need better tools to uh, recognise sepsis or do we need to understand sepsis more and define that better to allow us to have tools? You know, sepsis... Is not as clear cut, I think, as as we once thought. And I think, you know, particularly working in a pre-hospital environment, it is hugely challenging with limited resources. And actually, a lot of what is happening is is you know with limited information that is available. I'm not surprised, but this doesn't surprise me either, given what we know about in hospital sort of um, early warning scores. Um, which are only a little bit more accurate. Um, I don't know what you think about that, Rick.
1: Yeah, well, I I actually um, completely agree with you. I do think this is a really important area to improve upon what we're doing right now. We know, for example, that pre-hospital antibiotic administration is associated with improved survival for patients, but the really big challenge with that is antibiotic stewardship. So we don't want to be giving antibiotics with a specificity of, you know, 30, 40%, because then we're giving lots of unnecessary antibiotics to patients. However, we really do want the patients who have the most serious infections to get them early because they're going to derive a mortality benefit. So it's clearly an area to focus on. Whether we could improve on this with um, better diagnostic tools for the paramedics, such as an area that I'm interested in, pre-hospital lactate testing or CRP, or even pathogen detection in the ambulance. There are loads of possibilities now with uh, with, with uh, better technology. And um, perhaps we just needed to arm our paramedics with better diagnostic technology.
0: Yeah. And I think, as you say, as the technology is is developing and becoming cheaper, easier, more portable, you know, actually that way well, I can see it going full circle and, you know, actually diagnosing and keeping people at home if that's what they want without ever bringing them into hospital. But I think we've got a long way to go first. Um, next, is it my turn with uh, Cordra I believe? So there is this month a practice review on probably one of the diagnoses that none of us really wants to miss, and that is a diagnosis of Cordero-Quiner syndrome in the emergency department. Uh, the lead author is David Metcalf, um, and his team have written a practice review paper. And I really just wanted to bring it to the podcast to highlight that this is a great review of some of the challenges that we face within the emergency department. I think the bottom line is the care pathway for cordero syndrome should aim to diagnose or exclude this rare but potentially devastating condition as soon as possible. And it's clear that it is hugely difficult to diagnose. um, And they comment within the practice review that, you know, there is no single examination finding or combination of findings that is sufficient to exclude CES, so cordero syndrome, in a patient with symptoms suspicious for the diagnosis. And I think that generally means that actually if you've got suspicion, they've got the symptoms that matches. Until you've done the MRI you know, to confirm or disprove that, it's going to be very difficult otherwise. It is clear that any patient with back or radicular lower limb pain that has recently developed urinary symptoms, saddle sensation changes, bowel dysfunction, sexual dysfunction and I note I very rarely ask this and probably should be better at asking this, uh, severe or progressive bilateral lower limb neurology deficit should undergo emergency MRI scanning to exclude the diagnosis of CES. And often most patients who have just got unilateral symptoms without any of those red flags are unlikely to have CES, but that can be challenging and you know, needs some thought. And this topic is particularly pertinent and worth a read because um, the getting it right first time. So, the GRIFT has done a lot of work around corduroquina diagnosis within the emergency department and the wider system as a whole. So, definitely an article worth touching upon and reading and, and refreshing your understanding. The paper itself goes through the anatomy, the pathology, you know, some of the key symptoms, um, and definitely worth a read. I don't know if you've got any final thoughts or comments, Rick.
1: Well, I. Certainly agree with you that anyone who practices an emergency medicine in this country and internationally should have a look at this paper because it accounts for so much of our workload and it's such a medical legal risk. These patients are so easy to miss. So you've really got to be familiar with this. I think uh, Dave's review is uh, fantastic. Uh, it takes us through all of the key points, highlights the limitations of elements of the history and, um, examination that uh, perhaps don't have the best sensitivity and specificity. Uh, it talks about the role of investigations and how how quickly we have to do those. So I think it's definitely worth having a read. And it also, I think, points us towards what the, the team is here is is working on now, which is working towards a clinical decision rule or aid that might uh, identify patients who don't have corda without needing to go on and do the MR scan because... That is a bottleneck for patients. It does uh, prevent us from providing optimum care, I think, because patients have to sometimes be admitted, wait for scans, wait for reports. If we could do that a lot quicker, given that the majority of patients don't have cordial syndrome, we could give better care to patients and have a more efficient process in our EDs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to put the context of corduroquina syndrome in the UK so the annual incidence is 2.7 cases per 100,000 population. So around less than 2,000 patients a year will have corduroquina syndrome. Um, However, um, and I'm going to end on this final note 69% of corduroquina litigation claims are around diagnostic error or delayed management. And most of these claims, so nearly 88% are successful with costs um, in the region of around £400,000 per patient. So there is a huge importance, um, not only for the patient, but financially for us to get this right first time. Rick.
1: Thanks, Sarah. So the final paper that we've taken a look at this month is about understanding decision-making around pre-hospital blood transfusion. So this is a qualitative uh, research paper written by Max Marsden, as first author. In the paper, Max tells us that this uh, is part of his uh, PhD project. And essentially, he's run semi-structured interviews with 10 pre-hospital physicians to ask them about the factors that influence their clinical decision-making with regard to prehospital blood transfusion. He's done, a, he's done a thematic analysis and has identified three themes that were associated with uh, prehospital blood transfusion. Now I'll just I'll talk through those in a sort of narrative way and try and bring out the meaning of this research. Most of the participants appeared to say that they use multiple cues to make their decisions, and that's kind of expected. Further on in the results, uh, they tell us that while there are SOPs to guide the prescription of pre-hospital blood transfusion, actually the, the pre-hospital physicians were saying they don't strictly adhere to those SOPs. So they'll, they'll integrate information from multiple different sources and come to a rounded decision guided by the SOP, but Not strictly so. So for example, blood pressure over 100 might not meet the criteria by the SOP for a blood transfusion. But there there was a participant that mentioned that this isn't an absolute rule that you wouldn't give blood. It just lowers your suspicion. Because if the mechanism of injury was right and you really thought the patient was bleeding, just because the blood pressure was over 100, they might still give it. They did admit that there's an awful amount of uncertainty around this. And that's the hardest part there seemed to be consensus that in patients who are obviously exsanguinating, things are quite easy. You just go ahead and give the blood transfusion. But there was a nervousness about under-resuscitation. I think the participants seemed to be concerned that if they don't give a blood transfusion, when it might help the patient, they might be setting them off on a chain of coagulopathy and multiple organ dysfunction, uh, that they could prevent by giving that blood transfusion early. But of course, they want to give it judiciously into the right patients. And some of those Uh, patients are hard to identify because when it's obvious your patient's perimortem you're just going to give it it's the others where it's a little grayer and they they worry also about post-hoc criticism so I remember John Hines um, talking about this at conferences and gave very powerful talks about the decision to use a thoracotomy for example and how you're very often criticised whether you do or whether you don't when you decide to do a a thoracotomy in the ED. And there seems to be a feeling that was very similar to that, that you know the the pre-hospital physicians were afraid of being criticised later that they either didn't give a blood transfusion when it might have helped or that they did and the patient didn't really need it. So that uncertainty was a key barrier to decision-making. And there was clear concern about exsanguination mimics, so that's perhaps where the physiology of the patient is compatible with a really significant bleed, but ultimately the patient isn't exsanguinating. It's something else that's, re- that's causing that physiology. Perhaps the patient, for example, is septic, and the full was a red herring. Um, so there was there was uh, that was one of the themes. One of the two sites that participated in this used lactate and ultrasound. And there were quite positive feelings about the lactate point of care test. One participant said, I really like the lactate because I think it gives me that extra dimension for those patients where I'm either on the fence or the patient doesn't, to my external assessment, declare themselves one way or the other. So perhaps lactate being available in the pre-hospital environment might might help to guide these decisions in those grey areas. And the last thing I was going to pick up on was the finding that participants found that with experience, the factors that influence their decision-making change. So one participant said previously, I'd have been more swayed by physiology, and perhaps less so by the findings on primary survey. And perhaps increasingly, I've moved slightly in the opposite direction. And that, I think, is compatible with what we heard about exsanguination mimics so not just being guided by the physiology but also what's the context what's happened to this patient does the trauma seem to have uh, been likely to have caused uh, a serious bleed and you integrate that into the decision making process so it was really interesting to hear from these pre-hospital experts what drives their decision making and to see how we might do better in the future particularly again relevant to my interest with pre-hospital lactate testing coming in there.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a field that is uh, coming on and that we clearly need to know more about. So that brings us to the end of this month's November 2023's EMJ's primary survey. I'm going to say goodbye for now.
1: And goodbye from me.
0: And we'll see you next month or hear from you next month. Goodbye.